Welcome to the Retail Ready Podcast, hosted by Ben Wyatt, your destination for product development, food trends, and some serious knowledge bombs about the food industry. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Retail Ready Podcast. We're on episode number 67, and today I am joined by someone who I've wanted on the show for a long time. I am joined by Nicholas George, who is the CEO of Coco Black. Coco Black sells some of the most mouth-watering chocolate products known to man. They sell these in both physical stores and online, and it is safe to say they got hit hard during COVID. It also didn't help that it was over Easter, which was one of their busiest trading periods. It was on Nicholas to steer the company in the right direction, and this podcast was amazing insight to how Coco Black and George and the team responded. I love a podcast where I can leave the session having learned something, and this podcast was has definitely ticked that box. It was just amazing to see how a business and George responded, and the insights from it is incredible. It was awesome to have Nick on the show, and before I go into it, I just want to do a huge shout out to our main sponsor, Huff and Puff Pork Crackle, made here right in Australia. Give these guys the support, click on the link, and sit back, relax, and enjoy the show, guys. Thank you. Huff and Puff Pork Crackle is Australian-owned and made right here from 100% real Australian pork. Hand-fried and available in a range of flavours, the tasty crunch is hard to resist. Nicholas George, thank you very much for giving up your time to talk about your story and the Coco Black story. So I've given it away a little bit, but you are the CEO of Coco Black. But firstly, I just want to say welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, it's, um, we're both in Melbourne. We're both still in lockdown. Um, you've probably got more headaches than I have at the moment because yeah, you're, you're running a very successful business that have that's bricks and mortar at the end of the day. And, yeah. um, and I've seen that you're uh, now pushing the online space very heavily, but before we touch on that, can you just give a brief overview of who you are and uh, what you do? Yeah, um, yeah, thanks, Ben. So, look, I'm—I uh, would say an FMCG tragic, probably <laughs> is, uh, is the right way to put it. Uh, pretty much spent all my life uh, in FMCG. I'm French, as you'll pick up, it'll come through the accent every now and again. Um, but yeah, so. What is it now? It's close to 30 years that wow. I've been in the industry, started in France as a food tech, and then, you know, I've done half of my career with Nestle and the <laughs> other half with a lot of different companies here in Australia. Uh, mm. to, to stay in Australia instead of continuing with Nestle globally. Um, and I've, I've been fortunate to pretty much work in every environment possible you can think of in FMCG, from big to small to joint venture to bore to. Um, uh, to fully owned multinationals and, and small and now, you know, both small and uh, privately owned. So uh, it's been quite a ride, but yeah, really. So I present myself as an FMCG specialist because I've done everything from production to marketing to now running this business uh, here in Melbourne. Yeah. It is impressive. Like I've, I think I've connected with you. It, it must be a good four or five years ago because oh, I yes. remember, 
I remember when I saw your profile and, and this is the thing with LinkedIn. I think a lot of people just accept invites and no one ever actually does a look, bit of background. Uh, yeah. Whereas, whereas I'm a bit of a nosy bastard and I like to, um, I actually like to see who I'm connecting with. And I remember seeing you were, was it the R and D, um, director slash craft. Yeah, that's right. I was, uh, and, uh, I was running uh, that for a bit. That's right. And I, I remember seeing that and I was going, wow, look at what I like. And, and this was when I was just getting into the food business myself in the yeah. food industry. And I was going, wow, that sounds like a cool role. And I always think sometimes roles make jobs sound more exciting than they are. But I think you're the job title you had, I was like, this sounds exciting. It was, a very cool, <laughs> it was a very cool role, actually. So yeah, no, it was definitely a, a fantastic ride at the, at that point, right? So that's that's interesting. And then you also you you did a bit of university work, didn't you? Family, yeah. It was at Monash. Yeah, I was at Monash. Basically, I fo- I just followed one of my passion, which is innovation. And yeah. uh, Mondelez at some point had a real big agenda on that. Yeah. Um, and we went all the way, all the way to create the Food Innovation Center, which was, uh, you know, an industry uh, initiative as opposed yeah. to the Mondelez initiative. Um, and uh, so when Mondelez decided to review basically their global agenda and, you know, restructure, do what big companies do, um, we, we really, um, I was um, really looking to keep that. Yeah. Uh, into into uh, into its infancy and life because uh, we had put quite a lot of passion into it. And Monash raised their hand and say, "Yeah, we'd like to give it a go." So that that's how I found myself be, becoming a professor uh, of of industry innovation at Monash University. Which, if you'd asked me ever uh, <laughs> whether I would uh, have something like that on my resume, I probably said you've you're, you've been smoking. Um, <laughs> but it just happened. Sometimes, if you follow. You know, you follow your uh, your uh, aspirations and mm. opportunities. Uh, that's what I've learned really over my career is that uh, there's what you can expect and then there's what you can uh, give a go at. And and sometimes it's it's really cool. And in this case, it was really cool. Never going to be, you know, a, a long term pathway, but it certainly was a very, very good to to go and try. That's it. Well, if I, if I can ever get the title Professor of Innovation, then uh, then I, I think I've, that, I've right. done well. Yeah, that, that is that is pretty impressive, to be honest, and uh, something I can only aspire to. But I think I think when you touch on Mondelez, like they they are really looking forward to the future because the stuff that they're doing now with their snack futures and. And you, you look at the last six months, seven months of this year, and it's kind of been a write-off anyway. And But what they were doing at the end of last year and kind of bringing businesses on board and startups, I, I'm, I'm a real uh, follower and kind of I love what they're doing. Uh, were, they, were they a good company to work for when it when it comes to innovation yeah for a long time they were i think they've obviously had periods where you know you, big companies go in cycle um yeah. so they, you've got cycles where um they've done a lot of the um you know the efficiency work they've got reasonable margin they're on track so when they look then again for growth uh, and they they always look for growth through innovation, uh, mm. right? So that's always been in these particular kind of categories, which are non-essential, really. Uh, you've really got to bring it through desire 
uh, and consumer understanding. There's just no other ways to do it. So, but I think what Mondelez has learned sometimes the hard way and, and yep. definitely for experimenting is um, that uh, you've got to have multiple approach to innovation and you can't just, you know, think you're going to figure it out by yourself. Um, it has to be actually a very externally focused attitude. Yep. So I think what they've learned is that um, because they're so big and they're, they're a big company, which means that, you know, there's definitely bureaucracy as every big company mm -hmm. is always going to need. Um, uh, they've learned that they've actually got to have a portion of their innovation effort that has to come by looking at what other people are doing and um, using what they can do best, which is giving scale to ideas um, as their weapon, as opposed to try and come up with the ideas themselves all the time. So yeah. as long as you, you're, you know, you go over that and, and you get over yourself as being, you know, the biggest in chocolate, for example, for Cadbury and say, you know, every good idea should come from me. And then you actually realize that, no, what I've got is a great brand and a scale. Yeah. And you just compliment some great ideas will come from you and some of us you'll have to acquire. Um, and it's how good you are then both sourcing these ideas, acquiring them and making sure you don't squash them on the way um, that uh, that you, you become really powerful. So I know they've always been looking at that, but there's obviously been periods of their uh, history where it's been more about we need to restore margins. And at that point, you know, mm -hmm. innovation takes a back seat. Because yeah, definitely. You can't have more than one real agenda. You can talk multiple agenda, but you can't act multiple agenda. And so that's really been their phase. And I do think, as to your point, that they're now in a phase. I've seen it in Fonterra, by the way. Fonterra <laughs> was doing it first, you know, about yeah, okay. uh, two, three years ago, they were doing exactly what you're describing with a, a quite successful venture fund. Um, uh, of which uh, a lot of great things have come out. And they've gone even further, Fonterra, in the sense that they were even investing in some ideas and startups that they knew wouldn't fit in their business. So that they were literally just practicing venture funds <laughs> at the same time and then reselling businesses that actually had nothing to do with Fonterra. So it, it was quite interesting to see uh, how far you can push that logic. It's just really good because, yeah, people talk about innovation and especially big businesses talk about innovation but like you say it's it's there's a lot of politics involved there's a lot of bureaucracy and kind of there's some people that get it and some people that don't and i, I just think they are the approach that they're doing is is great but the amount of this podcast has told me like just how many ideas are out there that yeah. need backing and stuff like that and and you look at yourself and let's talk about you and fast forward to you being CEO of Coco Black, which is is pretty innovative. And can you just give an overview of like, I know what Coco Black is. I'm sure people listening have tried some of your chocolates or hot chocolates or even drove past or been in a store. But can you give an overview of sure. when um, when you actually came onto Coco Black and what, what it is? Yeah, so I, I started with Coco Black last year in uh, February, um, I basically was uh, approached and recruited by the owner, Simon Crow, yeah. who also owns Grilled. Yeah, great um, business. Grill Group. And really, um, uh, Coco Black's almost an idea. You know, I feel, always feel when I talk about that, I feel like I'm in Inception, you know, really talking about that. <laughs> Uh, you know the famous phrases from Leo. DiCaprio. It's a great, great film. <laughs> first and foremost, and I think that's what's important because there's there's hundreds of 
chocolate business out there. So, <laughs> you know, when you start and you go into one like this, it's actually not hard to start a chocolate business. It's really hard to grow a chocolate business because, you know, very quickly um, scale becomes your issue. So, and then the only way you can really give scale to something is if the idea at the core is actually powerful. Uh, otherwise, you, you know, you, you face very quickly that uh, you just want more. You know, you yep. can always have a, a small following. And if you do a really good job in your small side of the business, you will get that. Um, but as soon as you need to recruit new consumers outside, it's the power of your ID. And I think what Simon recognized when he bought the business is that Coco Black, you know, is based on a very strong ID, which is uh, being the contemporary Australian artisan. And, yep. and, you know, there's a lot of layers in that, but essentially it's it's a business that's based on the idea that uh, you can take a really traditional category like artisan chocolatery and do what Australians and New Zealanders do best, which is actually reinvented with the new world attitude. You know, they respect the core of it, but they change everything that they don't think um, is uh, is core. Or, or required. So they've done that with wine, they've done that with uh, cheese now, coffee, you know, so you can point a number of categories where the countries uh, in this part of the world have, have really done something with it that, you know, everybody know coffee or wine or yeah. chocolate. But now there is such a thing as Australian or New Zealand wine, Australian yeah. New Zealand coffee, you know, who would have thought so and so I think Coco Black is exactly that for artisan chocolates. Um, and that's what's really exciting about it. It's, and if you just put a business attitude to it, what's really exciting uh, about it for Coco Black um, as a business ID is that it's actually probably the best expression of what I would say is what Asian consumers look for. Yeah, okay. Asian consumers, they love Australia, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. you know, we always talk about clean and green and sourcing, etc. But what an, an Asian consumer considers as a given is that you can have the best of both worlds. You can have that and ultra technology. You know, I always say, and it's it. It doesn't mean to say it doesn't mean to sound condescending. It's really just an example. Mm -hmm. But you know, an Asian consumer for for in their mind, they can be in the middle of Uluru and be buying stuff on WeChat you know, for yeah. home delivery in supermarkets uh, in their home in China, you know, to them, it's, it's, it's normal. It's what you should be able to do. Correct. And uh, when they look at Australia in particular, that's what they think, um, you know, they can have in Australia, they can have the best of both worlds. So then they translate that into the products. So I think the exciting thing for us, if you want, is we think Coco Black's an ID that's got global potential. And, and that's really why I joined uh, to try and work out how do we deliver on that? Because, you know, it's one thing to have a great idea, as you know. So that's what it is. And essentially, Coco Black operates across all channels, um, which really, really in this time is actually both a strength and a, and a flow, right? So we operate across retail, as you said, yep. brick and mortar. Okay. That's where the business started. That's where... The core of it is that's what's built it over the last 10, 12 years. This we've got 16 stores out there. They do both retail and lounge, what we call lounge, which is essentially, yeah. as you say, where you know you can experience your hot chocolate and your brownies and those kind of things. 
Um, and then we move across, you know, um, corporate channels where people buy our products to gift them. And yep. that will be a, a core piece of Coco Black. We are first and foremost, uh, probably a gifting brand. People buy yeah. cats mostly to give it to others because we are probably at that end where people feel we need to give, when you need to give something really special, they think, uh, well, at least our consumers think about Coco Black as that gift. Yeah. So well, corporate guys do it as well. Yeah. And we've got resellers. And then we, as you just said, we are now also e-commerce. And that's probably obviously the part we're trying to rely the most on in those troubled times um, yeah. where retail is really suffering. Well, let, let, I want to discuss that because, yeah, the last six months must have been absolutely crazy for you for, well, firstly, the first wave where stores were shut. So you, you would have had to adapt quickly over and that. Two, and then, two weeks out you know, of Easter, mind you. So not oh, just, yeah, which would not be a busy year. Time, you know, because if you did it in the middle of, uh, say, January, probably yep. not a big, big issue for us. Um, yep. But if you think about... Um, if you think about that, uh, you know, two weeks out of Easter, all your stock is made. You sell normally three quarters of your stock through stores. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden you have to shut down. <laughs> and oh. Start thinking, you know. What so, so, yeah. So please, please explain kind of like, yeah, what like the early days to then you having to literally be the leader of the business to go, right, this is the plan of attack. How did that go? Well, I think, I think obviously the first ways was crisis management, right? Was the same for everybody. Unplanned came to us uh, or came on us extremely quickly because, you know, we will forget, but it's literally yeah. 10 days, right? So you gone yeah. 10 days from, mm, we might have a problem to tomorrow you're shut, right? <sighs> That's what happened. So, um, so you know, because you look back and you say, "Well, you know, I could have stopped making stock, etc." No, yeah. you couldn't because you were done by then. So, yeah. So first, the first thing is you manage it like a crisis, um, and essentially what it means is you just put all emotion aside. You just lock yourself in the room with your core team, and you just say, "Right, um, what do we know?" Right? It's as if my factory just burned down. What do I know? Yeah. What am I going to do? And then you just in this case, you just put all your energy into that. And in our case, it was quite clear is the only way we were not going to have an absolute disaster killing the business was um, one being very, very clear with obviously your staff about what to do next, uh, because we still had, you know, 80% of our staff basically in stores. Um, the second thing, once you've dealt with the people side and, you know, the risks and all of that, then was about, um, well, it's still Easter. People still are going to want chocolates. Um, how do we get it to them? And essentially, it's been about pivoting on every aspect um, of the business. Um, E-commerce was going to be the obvious way for us. Um, <laughs> fortunately, we had been building uh, the foundation of a, of a great e-commerce business because, you know, again, we wouldn't have been able to achieve that. Yep. And then we took also, you know, a second pass at all our corporate clients and said, well, you know, most now all of you are going to be working from home. Uh, you're going to be stuck for a period. Uh, isn't that a great time to actually also still celebrate a family time? And so we we designed, delivered a whole range of packages for corporate clients. We, de we designed a way for them to uh, send presents to their staff at their homes. So we facilitated all of that, if you want. Yep. Uh, and we felt along the way, it was also a way for 
us to contribute to the crisis by basically giving some way for people in absolute turmoil to think about something positive. And, you know, it's a small thing, but when you were working in the middle of this, you also wanted to be able to cling to something that was positive. You know, mm -hmm. the worst thing in a crisis is just to see everything collapse around you. So we just needed to give that. And we felt, you know, chocolate, Easter, that's the right time. So obviously there was a business agenda behind it, but it wasn't just that. It was about saying, we truly think that's one positive thing you can be thinking about right now. Um, and so we pushed on that. And essentially that's what we did for the better part of the following month. Um, whilst managing all the consequences, because the other thing, as you, you know, as a lot of your listeners would think about is we're a food business. A lot of guys were a food business, which means it has a shelf life. Yeah, definitely. So if your demand all of a sudden, you know, disappears or completely changes, then you have a problem. <laughs> so we had to yeah. do that as well. So we had to come up with a lot of innovative ways of salvaging products or repackaging products or, you know, doing a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, which in a way was positive for our factory staff because otherwise they have nothing to do, um, which is probably also the worst part of this is that yeah. some people who had, you know, my life is in order, I know what I'm doing every day, all of a sudden that disappeared. Oh, correct. So, yeah. so by doing that, you're also giving, um, you know, each part of the business the an agenda to cling on and to say, I'm going to, I'm still there. I'm participating to that because it avoids fear and anxiety of, am I going to get a job? And remember at the time, there was no such thing as job keeper. So, you know, we were sitting here thinking, you know, we could have a business close in three yeah. weeks, two weeks, three weeks, because cash is, you know, very, very short. Cash. So no one had certainty. So that's why that first wave was really crisis management. Whereas that second wave we have now is very different, very different, um, you know, um, I don't know if you want me to build on on that second. Definitely, yeah, please do because yeah, I've I've just wrote down a few questions to touch on, but it would be interesting because it's only Melbourne that's going through this second Correct. wave. So that, that's already a difference. So yeah, and the first thing to remember is exactly what you just said. It's only Melbourne. So when we've been working through what do we do this time is the first thing that was really important is remembering that so that you don't have you know, this, the Bridget burning attitude this time, yep. half of your business is still live. So what you need to do is focus on those guys first and make sure that they get absolutely everything they can. And if anything that you say to them, guys, we rely on you this time. So yeah. you've got to go after every opportunity and tell us what you need. So, so that, that's a very good first point, really, that you've pointed out there. Um, and then the second piece really for me this time around is that um, we know what we're dealing with. Yep. We have JobKeeper. Um, so it's not like you're burning, thinking, shit, you know, how I'm going to yeah. pay my people next week. Yep. Um, and so you've got the experience of the first wave. And so really this time you've built a lot of capabilities on e-commerce, on corporate gifting, et cetera, that you did last time. So it feels a lot more different. Um, in the sense that you already have a lot of the answer. The real question now is more, how do I deal with the medium-term consequences of that? Um, um, and really the issue here is going to be how you have structural questions or, or risks um, 
you know, to your business and what do you yep. need to do now? How do you need to evolve so that it's not just about getting through the next four weeks, but now it's like it's been clearly it's going to have been almost five months in a row where yep. you were nowhere near your normal business. Yeah. Uh, you can't anymore consider that just a crisis. It's literally you have to reset, rethink your model um, as well as really, um, you know, change it and adapt it. And you've got to use this time to adapt. That's really now the next the next piece. And that, and that was one of my questions, like adapt and future visions, um, because what you what you've experienced this year, like the, there is going to be a shift of your consumer moving to online. And it's interesting that a couple of people brought it up this week that because people can't go on holidays, there's a percentage of consumers out there that are buying luxury cars, like plastic yeah. surgery is going to be going up. So the, there is money floating around. And when you look at your products, they're a premium price. Do you think that you'll have a consumer that will continue to to just kind of indulge in your products? And are you seeing that in sales now? Or are you kind of more focusing, which, which I've seen, and I absolutely love Nicholas, like you were doing hamper pack with my favorite gin brand four pillars and i yeah. look at that i look at that box and i'm like oh my this this is like my ultimate box it's got all the the best all chocolate the, all the stuff the, you like the most oh, yeah. I, I look at it and go oh my god like that is, that is uh, the ultimate birthday present if anyone's listening I, I know it's not my birthday till march and you enjoy the show oh my god that, that's all you need to get me for a, to to make me a happy man and um are you seeing kind of consumers who have got money that are moving online that will purchase that? And is that kind of where you're kind of attacking? Definitely. So obviously it doesn't, you know, because you can't transform your model from a business side um, that quickly, but you can certainly start shifting some parts of it. There's no question, absolutely no question that... Um, We've, uh, we've definitely found that gifting is probably a, uh, more than ever uh, very alive. And so it's more about how do we facilitate that? What do we do that helps people, you know, tap into that um, desire they have? Because interestingly, even though for businesses like ours, you know, cash is really tight and it's difficult. Yeah. It's not the issue in the market so much because, again, there's JobKeeper, there's a number of things. So there is available... Um, you know, available income out there. And if anything, it's, um, you know, it's not finding ways to <laughs> to go to consumption so much because the traditional ways of spending it is are just not there. And yeah. what we think, oh, that's great. We're going to reduce our debt, etc. It's not really true in the sense that, you know, for people, uh, you know, it's part of your life. You know, you, yeah. you just don't expect to just shut down and do nothing for weeks at a time so we're, we're actually finding yes that people are looking for opportunities to gift and it's more about how we adapt how we give them better choices um whereas often initially our e-commerce business was probably more thought through as a an extension of our retail business right because the main game was retail whereas now we're thinking about our e-commerce business as we're a gifting platform um, how do we help people do that? So we've got personalization in, in you know, in our, on our site now. You can, 
Ah, cool. Messages. You can actually print your own sleeve over the top of our gift boxes. You can, as you said, pick hampers, and we're looking at you know bringing more of those um, alive. So, but it comes from that key insight that you just um, asked about is, you know, are we seeing a, an attitude or change of attitude from people and say, yes, I think, uh, you know, people in this second wave in particular, just want to, um, you know, to have a life, really. And so yeah. part of that is being able to, because you haven't been able to be with your friends or, or family and so on, it's a, you know, that gifting behavior is certainly increasing um, in frequency. And so it's about up to us as a business to see how we we can uh, you know help that. So, so the other reason why we've been you know investing and looking at every possible way um, we can help you deliver. So you know we work with the obvious people, the Uber Eats, etc. But we're looking at the true meaning of omnichannel is is really what we're talking about, right? So is wherever and however uh, you want to shop with us for someone else or for yourself yeah. but at least for someone else uh we'll figure a way to do it fascinating um, and so would, that, would... That's the new that's the new world really for us and then <laughs> you're happy because you've built something that's gonna last right regardless of what's gonna happen next would you say that this has been one of your biggest challenges in your career because it's it's just come out of the blue whereas you changing things would have normally taken in, as you know, from working in big companies, new new pro policies, processes take time. Whereas this year, you everyone's had to move very quickly. Would you say what you've just talked about there is has just been like a whirlwind, but a big challenge as well for you? Oh, yes. Look, I think there's no, no one's written any book for that, right? You have to pull on all your experience from the past because... Mm no one's experienced this kind of situation like i've been through voluntary administration in one of the in my previews so at, at least i had that kind of you know um this is how it feels type experience yeah um so at least that served me in this particular um instance but you know it is unique yeah there's so many challenges with this particular situation um, that everyone is experiencing so you know i don't feel special at all but um you know at the same time you can't fall into, uh, oh, well, it's the market. You know, you you, yeah. you still, if you don't do anything, <laughs> it's the writings on the wall, right? So <laughs> yeah. It yeah. doesn't matter that you can say, oh, well, it happened to everybody. No, it, you know, <laughs> you're in charge of a business. You still have, you know, 400 employees. You got to do something about it. So, but but I think, yes, it's, it's definitely the biggest challenge. And I think it's because it's also so long. Mm. You know, we were hoping it would be short, but it's not. And what I think we still don't quite understand is, uh, you know, what it's going to do to the market structure because we are second-guessing a few things, right? So we can think about e-commerce and things like that. But for example, you know, we had a reasonable business in travel. Um, yeah, okay. Interesting, yeah. The tourists from Asia, right? So when when am I going to see them back, right? What, yeah. What am I yeah. doing in the meantime? Should I start going to China instead? You know, so those yeah, kind right. of questions, right? Because no one's written a book on this. Um, and I don't <laughs> think anyone can because no one knows what really this thing is going to be and do. So we keep hearing contradictory um, prediction, right? So... 
for all we know, we could have a vaccine in, in three weeks, four weeks, and then everything goes back to normal real quick. Yeah. Um, or we could not have one for 12 months. And then what happens? Do we, how do we live with this thing? Because, you know, whilst I accept and understand the lockdown approach to this, uh, I think it's just, you know, it's a forward flight. Because mm -hmm. this, if this thing is um, as contagious as it seems, and we don't have any vaccines, we can't eliminate. I don't believe that you can't. You have, you have to work out how we're going to live with this thing um, until we don't have to. <laughs> so. Correct, 100%. And to, to be honest, this podcast has been, I, I, I value your time and I, I just think so insightful from a business point of view and a business mind. So I absolutely appreciate like what you've just discussed and i think everyone who's listening will be taking a lot out of this and uh, and it's and this is why i started the podcast so that more and more people could hear other people's opinions and how they do things and i think you've just nailed nailed it on the head where there's no book for this you're you're in a position where you can make change but even that's kind of risk a, an assessment kind of going I actually don't know if that'll work, but you have to do something. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of businesses that crumble. Um, and we're seeing businesses crumble now, whether it's they were a poor business before COVID is another question, or COVID has actually uh, just been, yeah, the final um, nail oh, on the head. Yeah, yeah. So I absolutely appreciate what you've just discussed. And it, I think it's been valuable information to a lot of listeners who are listening going, shit we're going through that and oh yeah i should be looking like that point then just on if you're one of your main consumers as you touched on was the asian um market and if they're not coming to australia how do you take the products to them and when you've got chocolate products it just becomes a little bit harder than right. um clothing <laughs> so you've got more, even more headaches to deal with <laughs> uh, well you know uh you just got to deal with it, right? So that's um, that's part and parcel, I think. That's it. I'm just going to ask one last question. Like, yeah. you, you don't become a professor of innovation and a CEO and 30 years in the industry. Have you enjoyed the journey? Like, have you have you enjoyed what you've achieved? And did you expect that this would be your journey starting out as a, a technologist in France? No, no. So that I can answer that part straight away is no, I would never have thought, look, when I started my, uh, you know, I've always loved food, so I wanted to be mm -hmm. into it. Uh, it's very early. Definitely. I was driven by innovation. I I've always been fascinated and interested about creating yeah. Uh, new products um but you know obviously had no concept when i started about what that really meant and you know all the layers that go eventually into that so um and that's probably in my red thread all the way right so it's actually being driven by that interest and passion mm -hmm. for innovation and then understanding it from multiple layers through you know design thinking to you know foresights etc etc there's so many interesting theories and perspective um and then i think what i like and i think my career shows that is test and learn mm -hmm. um i'm a big advocate that that's the best way to innovate um you know is actually do a lot of test and learns and figure out how to shape ideas um and i've done the same with my career i think it's 
been probably initially um, extremely facilitated by Nestle and all the opportunities they gave me, um, yeah. and I probably wouldn't be wouldn't have been able to do the next fifteen years without that, because the biggest thing uh, to overcome is the fear of failure, right? And and actually just having a go. Um, so have I enjoyed every bit of it? Probably not. There's probably times <laughs> where I would have to you, what the hell am I doing? What are you doing? I yeah. just stay in that job or that job. Um, but overall, I also know I would never have had the opportunities I had if I hadn't tried and failed in a couple of uh, steps as well. So I enjoyed the whole ride. Some parts of it weren't as fun as others. I'm very thankful and very, very happy that uh, I was able to do this and, um, and, you know, and being able to innovate in all kinds of things, even in business models these days. So that's, you know, that's even cooler uh, when you can think about innovation across all aspects. Uh, yeah. No, and uh, coming from myself, who who loves innovation and works in innovation, um, yeah, it, it is a special special kind of category to work in because there's a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of kind of yeah testing and learning and a lot of trying to sell in your idea and it just comes with its challenges, but it's it's great when things kind of come to life and the, the idea in your head or the idea in numerous heads that have come together is just a beautiful thing. So I've, I've Nicholas, I've actually really enjoyed this episode. So I really appreciate kind of yeah, your words of wisdom and time. So thank you very oh, much. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thanks a lot for having me and thanks a lot for what you're doing, actually. Thank, thank you. Well, you, you keep up the good work and uh, let's hope that, yeah, people start uh, keeping the distance and your Melbourne stores can open because, yeah, I was uh, really, uh, every time I used to go on Chapel Street on Melbourne, I, I, I'd be a regular into the one on uh, Turak Road. So <laughs> beautiful, yeah, beautiful what you've achieved and, uh Absolute pleasure again. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Ben. Appreciate it.